the primary purpose, as you said, is to help African-Americans who join the church or want to feel some community in the church? You know, I think it started out that way, but we have people of all races that come okay. because it's something different than the standard uh, sacrament meeting type. We have fun. You know, our whole thing is to make people feel welcome and to have a good time. We have a sense of humor. <laughs> that's good. At least that's what they tell us. <laughs> welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Don Harwell, Eddie Gist, and Wayne Myers, these three brethren make up the current group presidency of the Genesis Group of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Genesis Group is one of those less well-known auxiliaries in the church, so we hope to learn more about it in this episode. And as part of our conversation, we'll also discuss the race and the priesthood essay released in 2013 on LDS.org. I should also take a moment to welcome their wives who've decided to join us. Uh, we have a pretty full house here today. Let's start out with uh, getting an introduction to the Genesis Group. So you guys make up the group presidency, and you guys have been called to that for a while. Is that right? Eddie and I have been serving for 13 years. Wow, 13 and years. And Wayne is... I'm the baby. Yeah. <laughs> well, how many years have you been? I'm the baby, two years. Two years, okay. He is definitely a baby. So you're grooming him to take over. But I am the youngest of the members, so. <laughs> wow. Got to point that out. You're younger than Wayne? Yes. I didn't know that. <laughs> Prior to the 1978 revelation, which we'll, uh, we'll get into a little bit later, the Genesis Group was formed. When, when was that established? June 1971. October 1971. October 1971. And what, what exactly is the Genesis Group? Now or when it started? Uh, let's <laughs> go with what it started first. When it started, it was a just strictly a support group for African-American members because African-Americans would join, go to... Now it's a support group. Yeah. Back then it was a dependent brand. You, yeah, if you want to <laughs> correct it, feel free. It's, it's good to have our resources here. Yeah. In... June 1971, there were some African-American members of the church that met with three of the junior apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they met to discuss some of the problems going on within the church with Black Latter-day Saints. They met for several months, and then in October 71, the Genesis Group was organized as a dependent branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints basically dependent because they were dependent on others for the priesthood at that point in time. Okay. And so that's changed now since, obviously, since 1978. Right. So how so would you describe it today? We're a support group. To give you a little history, right after the 1978 revelation, Genesis numbers started to go down because we had the priesthood, we could go to regular meetings, and it didn't quite work out that way. By 1996, there was a call for Genesis to start up again. Do you remember, was it June of 96 when we met? We had a 25-year celebration in October 96. Okay, so right after that, Ruffin Bridgeforth was still alive, and he was the president. Darius Gray was the first counselor. And Eugene Orr, who was the second counselor, had moved to Canada. And Ruffin asked if I would be the second counselor, so I, yeah, I accept it. We started with six of us in the Relief Society room of my ward. And every month after that, us and our wives, 
And every month after that, it just kept building. Last month, we had 380 people and I think 60 to 80 kids. Obviously, we have really grown. Yeah. Well, what does a branch meeting typically go like? Is there the same that you might find in any other branch? If you say branch, they collect tithing and do all kinds of stuff we don't do. We open the meeting. Well, now we open it with the gospel music. We have a gospel choir, prelude music. And then uh, who's ever conducting, we call the meeting to order. We have business. We sing a song. Somebody does a prayer. And then uh, we have a three-minute opportunity to go meet three people you don't know. Oh. I think that's one of the reasons Genesis has grown so successfully. is because people start meeting other people. And it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. So this is different in that they do you pass the sacrament and those sorts of things. We don't too? do sacraments. So not part of it. No, we don't collect tithe. Well, if you want to pay tithe, and I'm only seven and a half percent, so <laughs> that's, <a discount. laughs> that's a joke if you don't get it. <laughs> so, are there other callings in the group? Well, the presidency. We have a relief society president. We have a primary presidency. Young men, young women's presidency. And uh, priesthood, we just kind of handle among ourselves. Okay. Primary and Relief Society and nursery are all common in every ward, but we don't have high priest group leaders or, or elder okay. quorum or anything all like together. that. Yeah. It's okay. a fireside type format. Mm-hmm. So it's, how many times do you guys meet? First Sunday of every month, even on conference Sunday. We're the only auxiliary I know of in the church that's allowed to meet on uh, conference Sunday. And I understand that you guys have a member of the Quorum of the Seventy that oversees the group itself. Who is that? Elder David Warner. Okay. How often do you guys communicate and, and correlate with them? How involved are they with it? Depends on what's going on. When Elder Warner decided the choir was strong enough that it should be allowed to travel, he and I were on the phone almost every day. And we had meetings once a week for a while. And he also included our stake pre- or my stake president. At that point... We were meeting or talking all the time. Now he and I'll talk if he has questions or if I have needs. Okay. So do you guys have, you don't have like a geographical stewardship or anything like that? From Logan to Nephi. Oh, okay. Are there other groups then? There are, but we're the only one I know of that's supported by the church. Oh, okay. So when I say supported, we have a a budget that actually comes from the church. Okay. Everybody else is under a stake president or under a, an area president. As we are formed, we're the only ones I know of that the church supports that way. The rest of them got started because of us and because of the success we had. Excellent. Are they pretty much in America, though? Where are they found everywhere? The only ones I know of, uh, there's one in Los Angeles, one in Oakland. There was one trying to get started in Arlington, Texas. Arlington is going. Huh? Arlington is going. Strong. Arlington's going. Wayne was president of one in uh, Cincinnati or Columbus. In Columbus, Columbus Ohio. Ohio, there was one in Cincinnati, Ohio. There's a strong one down in Florida. So, Rochester, so people can go all Rochester, over Rochester, New York, all, all over the U.S. and find find something. You got to look though. Okay. They're, yeah, they're Genesis type meetings. Okay. But we've been told not to let them call themselves a Genesis group. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Doesn't work though. <laughs> 
Uh, as I understand it, you guys also provide assistance to mission presidents, stake presidents, and bishops. In, in what ways do you offer assistance? If they have somebody African-American that joins, we'll have the missionaries bring him to Genesis. And usually, if they have questions on priesthood or racial stuff, they'll bring it to us. Okay. So they just find you online, or how about how do they go about reaching out? Well, we have a Facebook page. Uh, we're working on getting our uh, other pages up. We have a Facebook page, LDS Genesis Group, which has quite a bit of followers. And so we post all of our monthly announcements on there, our speakers, any activities we have going on. That's where you can find a lot of that. It has um, the presidency information there if you want to contact us. And that's kind of what we do a lot of our publicity from there. Okay. So Facebook is the best one. We'll put a link to that then with in conjunction with this episode. So we'll be able to make sure that people see that. The primary purpose, as you said, is to help African-Americans who join the church or want to feel some community in the church. You know, I think it started out that way, but we have people of all races that come okay. because of something different than the standard uh, sacrament meeting type. We have fun. You know, our whole thing is to make people feel welcome and to have a good time. We have a sense of humor. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> At least that's what they tell us. <laughs> so some might actually see this idea of the Genesis group and, and see it as this kind of distinctive unit and, and maybe even wonder if this isn't a form of segregation. Others might say, why don't we have a version of Genesis group for other marginalized groups? How would you answer that question if someone were to come up to you with that? How, how might you answer that? Uh, I would say that it's not a form of seg- Personally, I would say it's not a form of segregation. Uh, I actually, you know, you have Spanish branches, you have Tongan branches or, or wards. Uh, you have, you know, different wards and different nationalities all over the world. When you look at how black folks have been, you know, disenfranchised, we really we're kind of like a pirate ship without a flag, so to speak, you know. And so because of that, it puts us in a unique situation. And so I think uniquely, or because of that unique situation, uh, the Genesis group was formed. I have to admit, I saw that, I believe it was you, Don, that was on a, an episode of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. <laughs> you roll your eyes. You don't want people to know about that? <laughs> no. Well, there, there, was, there was something that came up of that that I wanted to kind of bring up. So I'm, I'm not going to link to the episode because, you know, if you don't want people to know about it, that's fine. But you were brought on and you were kind of put forward as a representative of black Mormons. Do you feel that by virtue of your calling that you're somehow a spokesperson? for black Mormons? My honest answer is I have a hard time answering for anybody else but me. Okay. I can answer for me. I can get close for my wife, but anybody else, no, I'm not a, I think I'm a representative because of the position I have, but I'm not a spokesperson. I can't speak for every Mormon. And when I get into conversations with other Mormons, some of them think a little different than I do. So one person is never going to be able to speak for the whole group. I think we all follow President Monson, but he can't speak for every Mormon and what they think. So I kind of resent people thinking I'm, you know, what I say is gospel for everybody, and it's not. That's fair. Part of that same episode, there was a question that was brought forward, or at least a statement that they said that black African Americans weren't fully accepted in the church until 1978. And again, understanding that what she's referring to in that was the removal of the priesthood and temple ban. But it made me wonder if black African-American Mormons feel fully accepted in the church today. For me, yes. But as long as there's people on earth, there's going to be those that don't want us there. 
is going to be those that want to drag us kicking and screaming there. <laughs> so you've got it from one pole to the other pole. I don't really care what they think. You know, <laughs> the, the gospel is, is mine for me to enjoy, okay? And I don't mind spreading it and sharing it, but I don't think I have the right to tell Eddie how he should do it or somebody should have the right to tell me how I should enjoy the gospel because we're all individuals, you know? I think back in the 1790s and the 1800s, that was the whole point that was lost is they could think they could find one person to speak for us all. We've mentioned the, the priesthood and temple ban, and for many who, who hear that term, race and the priesthood, the title of this essay that we're going to talk about, that's what they think about, is the priesthood and temple ban. So when you're asked about the ban or teach people about the ban, how do you articulate that? How do you answer that or teach that? Me personally, I don't think the ban was ordained by God. I don't, and, and when I teach it to people from my own personal perspective, I just share with people that uh, Heavenly Father uses, and this I think this is the blessing or the beauty of Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father uses imperfect people to do a perfect work. And so I think the priesthood ban was a product of his time. It ended, and we have the priesthood today. Anyone else? I'd, I'd love to hear everybody's response on that. I was just going to say, I mean, for me, I mean, I look at this this essay. It says right near that, that Brigham Young made the, made the ruling that that would be the case. And so he himself came out and said, we're not going to give that to blacks. And so for me, that says it right there. There's no more question about it. For me, it says it clear and, clear and day that this is something he decided he didn't want to do. And so we, we look at the essay, and it's, for me, it's right there. So we, we know that there was a point at which it started to a point. I mean, yes. it's still a little vague, but it did officially start under Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. How would you respond to it? Joseph, uh, Joseph Smith gave the priesthood to five African-Americans. Now, this is a history lesson that was taught to me. There was a gentleman named Zebedee Coltrane who was a slave owner, and he was determined that blacks would never be equal. So if we got the priesthood, we're equal, right? And he was the one that kept putting it in Brigham Young's ear that, uh, you know, blacks should not be allowed to hold the priesthood. And then when they left uh, Nauvoo, and they're going across the plains when they got into Missouri. The governor of Missouri, I can't remember his name. but Boggs? Boggs. He was pretty ignorant about it. And I think that was, now this is just what I think, okay? I think that was one of the biggest turning points of all is, you know, blacks could not be the same as whites. And that was pretty much Missouri was a slave state. So with that all kind of in play, I'd like to play something for you, and what this is is just a short portion, but this was President N. Eldon Tanner reading the revelation given to President Kimball in 1978. In early June of this year, the First Presidency announced that a revelation had been received by President Spencer W. Kimball, extending priesthood and temple blessings to all worthy male members of the Church. So, I would love to get your impressions. About time. It's interesting to me that in reading that, you hear the feeling of, thus saith the Lord, that it was, it was the time where the Lord said, this needs be. You know, when Brigham Young came out, I didn't hear or I didn't read, thus saith the Lord. So that just really makes it strong where you understand that 
this was just a practice at the beginning, right? This was just something that we need to realize. It was something that uh, man had to develop to have the desire. You have the, the apostles, you have them going to the temple and praying to accept this in their hearts. So I look at it like this, those were men. <laughs> those were men seeking God's direction. Uh, my name is Sabrina Myers. <laughs> Excellent. Who else? Anyone else want to say something? To... We had an about time. That's, that's a fairly honest response, and I appreciate that. The thought that runs through my head is God has been in most people's lives forever. When we came over here and we were slaves, one of the biggest things that went on was singing to God, once they learned English, singing to God to lighten their loads. I mean, there's song after song after song. So obviously God was always in our lives. Men, okay, at that time, white men took it upon themselves to determine what we could and couldn't do. And as slaves, we didn't really have a, have a choice. But I do believe God was always there. And the reason so many made it through was because the Lord was supporting them. I have a hard time, I'll be honest with you, I have a hard time watching 12 Years a Slave and those types of movies because it just hurts, you know. And once you get into the character and you find out who they really are, what they really wanted, they wanted to be free. They wanted the right to serve the Lord in their own ways and whatever way was available to them at the time. One of the strongest things that happened to me was meeting black Latter-day Saints before I joined the church who were so strong and so determined, you know, it made me start asking questions. So I think God has always been there. God talks to any and everyone if you're willing to listen. You know, as I, I listen to that, one of the things that I, I love about it is that it was sustained by the brethren. That's the one thing that it was a church-wide thing. It wasn't just something that was put out there. And that's one of the things I hear about this essay is because it wasn't given that same process. A lot of people have issues with that being actual doctrine or the beliefs of the church. Um, and, and that's my understanding of it all. When I talk to different people who that we talk about the essay, it was like, oh, yeah, that was just something they put out there. It wasn't something that was, was something they really wanted everybody to know. And so my hope is that the essay will continue to go forward, getting more recognition from the church as a whole. So it is seen as a valid document of what happened in the church and, and, and how it come to be. So I love reading and, and quoting the different people. I actually, when I was in the bishopric, I showed it to my bishop and he had me teach it for a fifth Sunday lesson. Awesome. And it was, it was quite interesting with some of the older members in the ward who had heard all these things. And for me to be able to read this essay and set some things straight— that was tough for them to kind of to take. What about you? Uh, the brethren said, we now have a desire that all worthy men hold the priesthood, which kind of makes me ask this question, was the desire never there before? So if now you have the desire, what's different today that you now have the desire and prior to you didn't, or was it that you didn't have the desire? I know it was voted on before in 1969 and it wasn't passed. They had to take a revote. But you look at it from the perspective of 
the desire and what was said prior to us receiving or all worthy men being able to receive the priesthood. So I just look at it from that perspective of the desire. Was the desire there previously? And if not, what changed? It's a fair question. It's a hard one to answer sometimes. Go ahead. One thing. Oh, I'm Heather Gist. And it's very interesting to me that very, very, very rarely are changes made within our scriptures. Whether it's just a wording for an introduction or anything like that, it's so rare. And about the same time that the Race and the Priesthood essay came out, there was a change made to that introduction to official declaration number two. Because it was only made in scriptures going forward, a lot of people's scriptures, paper scriptures don't have that still. But it's very interesting to me that there was a change made in that time, at that time too, that explained that a little bit differently. The part that stood out to me, aside from actually the revelation itself, was that it was sustained. It was something that was put forward for a sustaining vote, which I think speaks quite a bit to how important this issue was. This is Jerry Harwell. You know, there were changes and desires that changed. What's slower to change are the hearts of men and women. And I think that is something that is still changing. There's an old guard that won't give up their, or have not given up their beliefs, their feelings, their desires. So there's still a change that has to happen within one's heart to be accepting of that announcement. Yeah, thank you. So we we have the Race and the Priesthood essay, and people can go and read it. But if you were to teach this, when you taught it as a fifth Sunday lesson, what were some of the things that you brought out? Because obviously we have a limited amount of time in those lessons Mm -hmm. to, to bring out everything. So what are, what are some of the ways that you might give it hints on how to teach it? Um, I think for me, whenever I give a talk or something like that, it's like there's not much I can say that haven't been said. Okay. And so I try to make sure I have reference that I can speak to that I've experienced that I can tell my experience from. And from the essay itself, I just really hit the bullet points of the things that I've experienced that people have either pushed back against or didn't like to hear. And just said, you know, it's it's there. I didn't write this. This is what the church put out. And I kind of go from there uh, when I taught. And I think that's one of the things as we teach it within our wards on Fifth Sundays, um, you can advocate to your bishop to have that done. Um, I think it's a great one to teach. But it's really just kind of just going through the essay and hitting every single part of it, emphasizing the things you felt like need to be emphasized for your ward or for your stake. That's really my only thing. And that's what I did in my ward was I really talked about the things I felt was pertinent that I experienced in my ward or my stake. Okay. So follow the spirit on that. Yes. Awesome. Anyone else have experience teaching it? My way of teaching is to always let the audience teach me. Okay. Because then everybody pays attention to what's going on. The first time I taught this lesson, not one negative thing was said. In other words, everybody agreed with everything that was going on. The next time I got to teach it, I said, all right, now I'd like to know the truth. Forget my feelings. Forget that I'm black. Tell me how you really felt when you first heard that. One or two of the guys that were really good friends of mine stood up and says, I didn't like it. He says, I didn't think it was right. The ban or some other part of it? No, I didn't think changing uh, the way the priesthood was held was right. He says, since now that I'm of, you know, been around people like you, giving me all the credit, but being around people like you, I can understand why the priesthood was changed. And it just kind of blew me away that people felt that strongly against it. Something as great as a priesthood, why would you deny it to another man? So that was my experience with it. Thank you. You know, my experience, I, I had an opportunity to teach this at BYU. 
and uh, it was really unique and a privilege to be able to do so. But there were quite a few who rejected the race and the priesthood. Comments were made, this was not an official declaration of the church. It was not actually authorized by the church. So it's really, it, it really is hard to teach this in a church setting. I guess the problem for me was trying to really understand why is this such a hard thing for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as a whole, as a body of saints, to accept that all of us are equal in the sight of God and that all of us are like unto God and that all worthy males should hold the priesthood. I don't understand. I cannot comprehend why that is such a complicated topic to talk about as I watched BYU students, young BYU students, some get up and leave during the presentation that they were that offended. This is Jerea, and I'd like to add something that actually fits with uh, Don's comment. The second time, as I understand it, when he taught that lesson, there was a, an older gentleman who used to work as a secretary to one of the brethren down in church office building decades ago. And what he said was he didn't think he could follow a black leader. And what that says to me is that it speaks to and is indicative of the institutional racism that existed and still exist. The fact that they could follow a white leader and white is right and white is superior is what that's saying. Now, that one brother's experience with Don is just symbolic of the, you know, I, I, the feeling, racial tension, racial uh, problems in, in this country, not only the LDS church of that, you know, I, I don't like blacks, but you're different. I like you. Gotcha. You're the exception. You're the exception to the rule, but only an exception. It's interesting being in this group of amazing, amazing people. I'm the only one who was raised from the second I was born LDS. And I think that I had to come to a point in my life where I realized that prophets weren't perfect. And I think that that's something that is very faith challenging for a lot of people, because I think we are raised to just look up to them and believe everything. And just they're they're just perfect, perfect men. And to have this essay come out and think, wait, one wasn't perfect. Well, there, where does that put my faith? Do you know what I mean? And I think that that's really faith challenging for a lot of people to think about that that non-perfection and that they can make. Yeah, the fallibility issue is one that speaks to many different things, not just the issue of race, but definitely something that the members of the church are kind of looking to. So, well, thank you all for your comments on that. I I guess I'm kind of curious if, if you can give in, in summary one word or sentence that kind of describes what you see as the future looking forward with respect to race in the LDS church. How would you categorize that? I don't have to look forward. I can look at it now. A lot of people that were standoffish before are not standoffish now. I hate to use the word accepting because it's like maybe at some point they weren't accepting and I don't know that. But I think back in history, when slavery was ended, it wasn't blacks that ended slavery, you know. So there had to be a very large group of white men or white people who didn't believe in the concept. There were those that fought and died to give us an opportunity to be equal. So... I have it in my heart that good men are good men. Color just happens to be what it is. Well, what about you guys? Um, you know, looking forward, you know, and one of the things that I've kind of held to for my testimony is that, you know, all I can control is me. 
my faith, what I believe in, and how people see me as an example of me living my faith. And that's what I look forward to. And, you know, and whether there's a, uh, a black apostle at some point in my future, I think it will be. I don't focus on it. I just know that as good men continue to serve in the church, opportunities will come. Um, and that's just kind of how I say it. Excellent. I would say that for a church to be global, we need to have the face of the church needs to have a global perspective. Everyone has a right or should be able to have their uh, opinion or their need heard. There are 12 seats at the table and only one culture represented. It's going to be hard to meet the needs of a global church. Well said. See, he's, he's campaigning. He wants to be the one of the 12. No, no, that's not. No, no. no? All right. No. Well, I want to thank you all for coming in and, and talking about the Genesis group, of course, and we'll again put a link to the Facebook page and to talk about your, your experiences with this. It's complex. It's very real. It's still still real to a lot of places. I served my mission in the South, and it still has its challenges in different parts of the world in different ways. They're still fighting the Civil War. In a way, yeah, (laughs) in a way. But uh, again, thank you guys for, for, for everybody for coming in and talking. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone. An LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.